We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we record this podcast today, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalong Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jake Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums-to-be and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie and everybody listening. How are you today, Soph? I'm okay. I'm just going to apologise if I sound a little bit different today. Don't worry. This has happened since we recorded this episode. I'm not going (laughs) to sound like this the whole episode. But I, the past three days, have had this god-awful, ginormous ulcer on my tongue um, that has meant I haven't really been able to speak. I sprayed my tongue with like numbing spray before coming on to this because otherwise I can't speak. It hurts too much and I haven't eaten solids for three days. <laughs> I've been on smoothies. I'm so freaking hungry. I had pasta last night for dinner actually and I like chopped it all up into basically a pulp and didn't chew. <laughs> oh, you're getting ready but, for when you're a newborn. I know. No, seriously. So it's a bit of a, if you don't laugh, you'll cry situation because I was joking to you, Jade, that I finally feel well enough, like my (laughs) nausea and vomiting is under control, my reflux I've now got under control, both things that affect, you know, what you can eat and what you feel like eating. And now I finally feel so well and can eat anything and can just get back to you know, eating whatever I like. And Uh then this fucking ulcer (laughs) comes up out of nowhere. I've never had an ulcer. Like like I get ulcers whenever I'm stressed, but generally on like my gums or on the inside of my lip or whatever. This is on my tongue and has caused the whole back of my tongue to swell to the point that we actually had to reschedule an interview we were meant to do today because I was like, I can't talk for an hour. It'll be too painful. But where it's located on the right side of her tongue is like, right where your teeth are Mm. so it must just rub constantly if you're talking so this is the only time Sophie will be quiet is when she has an ulcer on her tongue nah the the downside does still talk the downside is it's so hard to yell at the kids because I can't like raise my voice or really enunciate well that is sad and so they have no idea what I'm yelling at them about and so they're ignoring me even mm. more than usual that's not fair but anyway how's your week been well I, it is ulcerless so I will say that <laughs> tick <laughs> yes tick I'm okay there I have kind of a high and a low again the high is that I am so onto my Christmas shopping which I've never done before I'm usually like the last week I go just really hard and get it all together but I've had time to really think about thoughtful presents for everyone Mm. and I also want to do one for a few of my doctors as well just to say thank you so I'm in the midst of doing that but I ordered the girls their like big present their actual present and the downside is that it has to arrive three weeks early before Christmas so it's actually arriving next week and um I was sort of umming and ahhing as to what I was going to do about it and then do you I mean because you can't hide it you can't hide it so it's one of those woolly it's not a trampoline it's a like a ninja warrior course and I just thought Mm. it would be a great idea they can all play on it together it'll last years upon years and so I thought yep that's great that's going to happen my husband won't be able to like build that so I'll get someone in to build it like a proper guy from that company and they're like yep the only time and availability Mm. we have is da 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 so I'm like okay um I cannot hide a giant ninja warrior course course so I was trying to work out do I tell them Santa came early do I tell them I don't know what anyway no 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 mum hack Santa doesn't get to give the gifts like that yeah so this is those gifts are from you and Harry 
Santa can give them the crap that, you know, they ask for like Poppy wants some hair clips and a couple of necklaces. Yeah, okay, cool. So Santa I've never actually done this before but I that's what I realised. I was like I always gave Santa the glory of all the presents and this year I'm going to let it be known that it's actually mum and dad that is doing yeah. all the hard work, paying for everything and having a gift for them. So I'm going to blindfold them and give them a special surprise, which they'll be so pumped about. And then when Christmas comes, you're right, it'll literally be like slime, uh, a few things, and that'll be it. Yeah. So yeah. now nah, Santa gets far too much credit. We can use him for bribing, yeah. but then we can't let him get all the credit on the big day. No, never. I've decided I'm going to do some gift guides on my Instagram page. Oh, but that's I figured, nice of you. Yeah, and I'm going to share the kids one across to be on the bump. So make sure you're following us there. But my kids guide is obviously for younger kids. I feel like I'm going to rope you in to do one for the older kids because oh. mine's kind of five and under, whereas yours can be like. You can do the five to ten year bracket. Okay. We've decided. Yep. Thank yep. you. All okay. right. Add that to the schedule. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I'll get on to that. We do want to say one more hi, and it was quite funny because last week on the episode in the intro, we Jade was getting you all to vote for us in the Listener's Choice Award. <laughs> Little did we know that the night before that episode even came out, the Australian Podcast Awards were on. We weren't invited, but we True. did place in the top ten of all the podcasts for the Listener's Choice Award, which to me me is the most important award because it's the only award that listeners can vote for. Yes. So thank you so much to everyone who voted. We cannot believe we were in the top 10. Like that is just mind blowing. Yeah. And we were in the top 10 with so many other epic podcasts. You know, some people we do know and some people we don't. So yeah, it was just such an honor to be up there. Big and respect. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to vote for us. Maybe next year we'll get an invite to the event. <laughs> we'll wait and see. Or maybe not. Maybe we won't. <laughs> or maybe not. Or maybe we won't even know it's happening and we'll be still asking you to vote when the winner's already been announced. <laughs> We're hopeless. We'll get there one day. So hopeless. Oh, maybe. Maybe not. Uh, Now, I do have a Rudolph fabulous for us this week. Go. This one was sent in by Emma. She said, my boyfriend is extremely financially driven. He loves crypto, real estate, money in general, which I'm very grateful for his financial literacy, but it just does not get my dopamine going like it does his. Agreed. On the way back home from a weekend away, I was driving and I said, put a potty on for me. And he said, okay, what about an investing podcast? And I was like, oh my God, no way. I'll fall asleep at the wheel. That morning I'd sent him a picture of a mountain hut. I'd love to own one day and said it was on my vision board. And he responded with my decline of the investing podcast by saying, well, we aren't going to get that mountain hill hut by you listening to that baby bump, whatever podcast (laughs) you're obsessed with. Rude. Rude. We've been putting the call out. We want to talk to someone about finances. So come on, come on our potty and you can listen to baby bump whatever and still get your fucking mountain hut. (laughs) Yeah, we'll do a two for one episode and you can have it your way. I don't care how many times crypto is explained to me. I don't understand it. It's too much. This is (laughs) going to be about actual physical money. (laughs) Making the money. Okay, we've got another Rudolph fabulous and this is sent in by I don't know Sophie because <laughs> oh no here we go this one is sent in by Emily Rudolph fabulous we have a stuffed toy that my toddler is inexplicably terrified of so when he's annoying me I carry it around and he won't have a bar of me I think it's fabulous mum hack but his future therapist might think otherwise <laughs> do you know what happened I had I a, love that it's, it's so wrong it's genius. something you don't admit to anyone else but it's so genius it's like uh, the robot vacuum I've got. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite a lot of my kids' friends are 
scared of it. So when I'm ready for them to just go upstairs and play, I turn it on and they all disappear <laughs> upstairs. But I had this, I had this toy. It was Olaf from Frozen and it was a really big one and it got sent by one of our family friends. And I noticed that every time when Mia was little was misbehaving, I would literally pull it out of the cupboard and she would scream and would like just reset herself and like go, oh, mum and have a cuddle. And it is, it's a nasty thing to do. But like sometimes <laughs> when you're at your wit's end, you kind of have to pull out really creepy we toys know out of the wrong. closet. Look, we know it's wrong. But a lot of the things we do in parenting, we know are wrong. Yeah, it's wrong town. You know, you're not perfect. No, we're good enough. Now, this episode today is an absolute rip snorter, isn't not? <laughs> it is indeed. We chatted to Dr. Fran, who is a perinatal psychiatrist and just a fabulous human being. And we chatted all about antenatal depression and anxiety. This is very close to my heart because it's something that I've experienced recently. Obviously, everything depression and anxiety related is very close to Jade's heart. So it was really nice to get some more ants and just, yeah, as we often like to feel, feel less alone in it. So we hope you enjoy, we hope you get something out of this. We're truly sorry to anyone who's currently going through this. If you do find this episode triggering, we have linked the number to Panda in the show notes. They are a not-for-profit organization that help with perinatal mental health issues. So yeah, we hope you get something out of this. Yes. And the last thing I just wanted to say is that Sophie and I do tend to talk a lot about our own experiences in this. So I know a lot of you probably have heard, you know, our experiences throughout multiple episodes, but for this one in particular, as Sophie was saying, it is very close to our hearts and it's such an important conversation to let as many mothers know that they aren't alone in their feelings and parents and dads. So yeah, we hope you enjoy. Hello, Fran. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Would you be able to tell our beautiful listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do and I guess why we're speaking about what we're speaking about today? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, ladies. I'm thrilled to be part of this. So I am a perinatal psychiatrist. Uh, Perinatal means anything uh, to do with pregnancy, actually a step before pregnancy, preconception, pregnancy and the postnatal period. So I specialise in the assessment, diagnosis and treatment of mental health issues that can pop up during that period. Having said that, I've been doing this a long time and without revealing my age, (laughs) I don't sort of, you know, drop patients if they're not strictly perinatal anymore. So many of my longstanding patients, I've journeyed with them since then and it's become about parenting and juggling motherhood and work and careers and all that sort of thing. So from a professional point of view, can't we just claim that we're postpartum forever? Like surely once we've had the baby, like Jade, you know. I I claim it You're three years postpartum from your third and, you know, you'd like to claim it. My mum claims that she's (laughs) third. 55 years postpartum. Yes, that fourth trimester last three. I think you're right. I think you're right. I like that. Now, before we get stuck in, Fran also has a epic Instagram yeah. account. It's all about dopamine dressing, it is, is that right? It's bright and colourful. She, It's like she's a walking serotonin. She's fabulous. You've got to check it out. Oh, thank you. I yes, it's my little side hustle and I'm a little bit gob- gobsmacked that it's it's grown into what it is, but I love it. I love it. It's my creative outlet, it's my self-care. And interestingly in my practice, you know, it's often a bit of an icebreaker with patients when they sort of say, I love your shoes or I love your car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you want to give it a follow, it's dreams.of.color and it's just you wear the most beautiful prints and colours. You can't stunning. help but smile when you look at it. And I imagine it does lift the mood slightly when, you know, you're sitting across from your patient stressed like that. So it's absolutely beautiful. Now, we are going to be chatting about antenatal depression and anxiety today. This is something that I feel incredibly passionate about. You know, for people who have been listening for a while, they'll know that I'm currently about 30-ish weeks pregnant and suffered quite badly from antenatal depression at the start of this pregnancy. I feel like I maybe had it a bit with my second pregnancy and it is just 
such a mindfuck because you want to feel grateful. You want to feel excited. You know, of course, the first thing when you tell anyone you're pregnant is they say, congratulations, how exciting. And you're sitting there going, well, why am I feeling everything other than excitement? And it's also just something that I don't think, I feel like postnatal depression is starting to get a little bit of the microphone that it deserves. But I feel like no one's talking about antenatal depression. And it's often a time that not that many people even know we're pregnant. And it's just so, so isolating. So we thank you so much for coming here and that you're going to answer our questions today and give us a little bit more insight. Absolute pleasure. And I think you're right. It doesn't get the same airtime that postnatal depression gets. And I think it's wonderful that that awareness about postnatal depression is out there. But uh, women can be just as primed during pregnancy. And if anything, I think it can heighten risk further because we know having a baby is a risk factor in itself. So if we don't address it in pregnancy, it only amplifies risk as you head towards having the babies. So really important to put a spotlight on it. So to start off, what is antenatal depression? Sure. So antenatal refers to pregnancy. So it's a depressive episode that can happen at any point in the pregnancy. It can be at the start of the pregnancy. It can be partway through. It can be even towards the end. So at any stage of pregnancy and look, mood ups and downs can be part of, well, everyday life and part of pregnancy. But the main difference, we call it an antenatal depression, or as I often term it, a clinical depression, when you have a certain set of symptoms that that includes a lowered mood that is sustained and persistent. That's the main difference. It's there more often than not. It can still fluctuate, but at a lower baseline. And that baseline is sustained and lowered over time. And we, we give it a minimum of at least two weeks, you know, many women by the time they get help, it's been there for longer than two weeks. I don't know any woman that comes and seeks a referral right on two weeks. So it's a sustained lowering of mood. And the other adjunct to the diagnosis is that, you know, it impacts your level of functioning in some way. So whether that's around the house, in relation to parenting, at work, socially, there's a level of functional impact as well. And do you find that vomiting goes hand in hand with making you antenatally depressed? (laughs) Yeah, because it's because I mean, I had hyperemesis and it's so like, you know, even if someone didn't have antenatal depression, I feel like no one's going to be like stoked on life, like can't keep anything down, feel like absolute balls all day. Like, how do you decipher what is what? It's really tricky. And you're right, with sort of a sustained crappy circumstance and mm, yeah. I'll put hyperemesis into a crappy circumstance. Yeah. I've absolutely looked after quite a few women over the years that have had hyperemesis and it's bloody awful. So when you have a sustained trigger, it's hard to not, I, I think what starts off is probably an understandable lowering of mood and anxiety, yeah. I think can morph into a more sustained, it's the sustained nature of the mood shift really. And sometimes you can never really know. And I always say to my I wish I had a blood test. I wish I could get yeah. a blood test that told me you have, yep, your markers for a biological yeah. depression are up. You've got it. Or no, this is just the hyperemesis or the circumstance or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's not always easy to t- untangle it, but you do get a sense, I guess, over, well, certainly I do over a few sessions with a patient. And, and I think what that highlights is getting some help and an assessment is a good step to sort of trying to untangle it. So many women will, we're all very good at kind of, um, you know, we in, sort of intellectualize it a little bit, rationalize it and, oh, but this is what having a baby's meant to be like, or this is what, you know, I'm, I'm, of course I'm nause- I've got nausea and vomiting. Of course I'm going to have a low mood. So we, we tend to sort of maybe minimize the existence of the clinical depression. Yeah, I feel like for me, I realized it was an issue where in days that I maybe wasn't as physically sick as I may have been the day before, there was actually no difference in my mood. And my husband would be like, oh, you're feeling really sick today because I couldn't get out of bed Mm. or I was basically mute or 
you know, couldn't smile or whatever. And I would actually say, oh, no, to be honest, I actually don't feel that sick today, but I just feel really heavy. There's no joy in anything. Yeah, that's yeah. a really important point is that, you know, on the odd days, if you do have hyperemesis or persistent nausea, on the odd days that you feel, you know, that that lifts and you're, you're physically feeling better, but your mood isn't following suit, then absolutely that's a sign. That's what I mean by that sustained lowering. Even yeah. Like you say, things are fine. You know, I'm feeling physically better. That's definitely a red flag. And then you almost go to yourself, oh, this is a day that you could be getting this, this and this done, but you still... Yep. don't want to get out of bed. You still don't want to. This is a negative mood too yeah. because I could, I should, I must, yeah. I have to. How common yeah. do we think it is or is that, because I mean, I'm going to admit I didn't seek help even though I knew this was happening. Like I think because I'd had it with Goldie before, I told myself it was temporary. I knew like, you know, with Goldie it had, it had only like freaking like had lasted about six weeks which is in the time does not feel like only but maybe in hindsight so I just kind of told myself I was like well what's anyone gonna do it's just because I'm pregnant like it's gonna be temporary so is it impossible to really know how common it is oh look I mean we do have stats they they say at, at least one in ten women will have depression and or anxiety anxiety is just as common in pregnancy it's a bit higher in the postnatal period if you want the stats on men it's one in 20 in pregnancy. So it's not uncommon. That's 10%. And do you know, I think a lot of women are like you. So I do think the rates are probably higher, Yeah, um, but they don't seek help. So they go under the radar and great if it lifts on its own, but not great if it doesn't. Because, you you know, you're a bit of a sitting time bomb because having, a, like I say to a lot of women, having a baby is lovely, but it's a risk <laughs> for more yeah. mood lowering. Yeah. If you have got it during your first, second or third trimester in pregnancy, yeah. what do you do to help the situation? Like, because obviously you were carrying a child, I'm sure you're not getting thrown like medications unless it was severe. So what is the process? Look, I think, you know, you don't have to automatically go and see a, a GP and then, or, and then from there a psychologist or even a psychiatrist. And you're right, it's not about medication from the get-go. You know, and some women can, can have a full resolution absolutely without medication. I think accepting, acknowledging it is a big first step. You, you've got to be true, true to yourself. I think a lot of women, like I said, will minimise it or rationalise it or it's normal, I feel like this. But you've got to anchor yourself in how you're feeling every day and you've got to actually be honest with yourself first and foremost yeah that's often the first and most difficult step because we're all oh gosh I always say if I had a stamp of the most common personality style you know the perfectionist uh needs control and order in her life high self-expectations and the optional extra is the need to please and be approved of by others so <laughs> some people have the, the whole gamut. Tick, 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 tick. Yeah. yeah. And so because of that wiring, and especially if we're a little bit rigid about that need to just be in control and do things perfectly, I think we're not always good at, well, admitting it to ourselves, let alone the next step, which is just, you know, surrendering a bit and asking for help, whether that starts at home with your partner in terms of how you go about divvying up the roles and responsibilities, having a bit of a reprieve, asking for help beyond your partner, like your family, friends, you know, can someone cook a meal? Can someone come and look after my little one because I can't do it? Or getting an extra, even ex- external help, getting a cleaner in, getting an extra day of daycare. Some women look mm. at me like, oh, I can do that. You mm. can. You know, in accepting it, we have to actually then make space for it and actually change how we do things. So looking after ourselves, having time off work if that's what you need. Sometimes work can be protective because it's a distraction. Mm. So it's a very much an individual thing. It's okay if you feel like lying in bed for part of the day, but then 
schedule something that is manageable because that's a big part of it too. Doing mm. things that you're still connecting with that you enjoy and readjusting the goalposts so that rather than thinking, oh, but I should do all the other things I usually do, you have to acknowledge that, well, you've got the equivalent of a broken leg. No one expects someone with a broken leg to run. In fact, you know, I always joke, maybe we need to put a bandage on our legs to remind us <laughs> and people around us because that's the other thing. People don't yeah. sleep necessarily. So that can be helpful. I think promoting sleep disturbance can be a feature. So sleep is magic for depression and anxiety issues. Sleep is really important. And so if you're not sleeping, working out ways to bolster sleep. And this is where I think beyond what you can do within your own realm, this is where seeing a GP is a first port of call um, is really important and working with your GP. And then if you, you know, beyond that as a psychologist or a psychiatrist and you know, before it even gets to medication, doing some some psychological work. So to work through whatever the hardships are, the issues, the triggers, working on challenging the faulty negative thinking that goes with, with the mood disturbance. And where needed, sometimes medication is important too. Answer your question. No, absolutely (laughs) does. I find that it's sometimes so hard to do though. Like if you have anxiety and depression, when you have anxiety with depression and you're in a state, it's incredibly challenging to to actually act on all those things to get you out of that state. So the anxiety almost keeps you in there. And when you were talking about perfectionism and trying to control things in your mind, you were literally going, I understand what you're saying, but how can I get out of this? How can I do this? Like it's, it's always me criticizing myself. So it's extremely difficult when one, you've never had anxiety or depression, or you're having another episode and you're, you've got a baby inside, but it's also challenging to know how can I deal with these signs if I'm actually not well enough to address them. Well, that, that's, I think, I think a marker for where you really need to get external help. And you're absolutely right. That is a feature in itself. And it's this ironic thing, isn't it? Because intellectually we grasp we're not okay, but the anxiety symptoms don't let us um, interfere with the process that is the therapeutic process of letting go and readjusting those expectations we put on ourselves. And and it can be a really futile cycle, a really frustrating futile cycle. And I think, you know, that, that to me is a marker of severity where if it's mild, you can break through a bit. By the time some women get to me, they're at, you know, I always call it the, the anxiety or depression dial. The dial is right up. And they're, they're telling me, you know, give me all the strategies. Tell me all the strategies. Like, and I'm like, I can Slow give down. strategies, but they're not going to work because the level is too high. We've got to go back to basics. We've got to do things like get on top of your sleep. Sometimes we've got to get some pharmacological help to do that, whatever it is. And, you know, I can tell you to do some breathing strategies. <laughs> I'm going to tell you to do some mindfulness. They ain't going to work. So I think when the thinking patterns are so on loop and so ingrained and so uh, rigid. It's a marker of the level of severity, the level of how high that dial is. And that makes it hard. So people can tell you all these things or you can, yourself can know, because we're all pretty intelligent women. You know, I, I always say I've got um, all the patients that are referred to me are all very high functioning, intelligent women. We know yeah. this, we know <laughs> this, but it's, it's really hard to do. And that's the thing, like I look back and I think, why didn't I go and speak to someone? And it was almost like at the time, it was just another thing that I couldn't get my head around. But so much of my negative self-talk was you are so not fun to be around. All you do the whole time is whinge. Even when you're not feeling sick, well, then it's just another thing. Like it's low mood. And so much of it was that I was just so over being in my own company and I was so paranoid that everyone else was over being in my company. And so it probably would have been, I mean, it definitely would have been so helpful for me to know that I was lumping that on someone that, and of course the people around me didn't, care they they didn't care in the way you think they are yeah absolutely but I think that even me as a people pleaser and an over analyzer as you were saying before I think it would have made me feel so much better knowing the role of this person is to listen to what I'm going through so dump it on them (laughs) yeah 
you may got to make space for it yourself, but others will make space for it because when they care about you, they will. And and I often say to people, like, if it's a burden, like they're responsible for their well-being too. So you can't be responsible for deciding whether yeah, you love they can them hear or it or not. not. Yeah. yeah, but let them decide that. You know. So this is what I, this is the sort of work I do. Just it's almost like I feel like I've got a state the obvious sometimes mm. and in itself it gives women permission to sort of do this stuff it's like sometimes you need someone to say it's okay to do this and it's just as important I would say like if, if I was a surgeon would you want me to just use one hand to get the ideal outcome or do we use two hands you know we've got to put everything in um, if you've got a broken leg you've got to put not half a cast on you've got to put the whole cast on and this yeah. is part of it we've got to We've got to surrender a little bit and allow ourselves to to do these things. And what do we think is generally the cause of this? Is it hormones? Because I know mm. mine was both times at its peak around 10 weeks. I remember my pregnancy app telling me that there was some form of spike happening around 10 weeks. You're like, I can feel it. Um, there's something <laughs> developmental happening yeah. here <laughs> before the baby's yeah. even born. It's a leap, but not in a positive way. Do, do we think it's mainly hormonal? Yeah, I, you know, I always say there's the, bio, it's multifactorial just for the record. There, There's not one, just one cause, but I always break it up into biological, psychological and social factors. And the one of the biological factors is indeed hormones. I've seen in a few women, as soon as they get that positive pregnancy test, their mood just, it just shifts. And that's pretty clearly correlating with hormones. Uh, so yes, hormonal influence is definitely a factor for some women. I think, you know, if you've got a family history, so just sticking with the biological realm, the genetics, you know, you don't have to have a family history of antenatal or postnatal depression, it just can be depression and anxiety in yeah. general. And you know what, you might, that's how it might unmask itself, that genetic predisposition might unmask itself combined with the hormone, you know, in pregnancy and the postnatal period because of the hormonal element let alone then the psychological adjustment to, mm. to being pregnant I think is mm. one so well firstly if it wasn't planned that can throw you a loop and so <laughs> well there you go yeah <laughs> That's we were planning on a third just oh, I hear this. Oh, not I quite it. sure yeah. when it, this happened uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, unplanned but wanted is common yeah sometimes unplanned and I'm not sure if I want it so that's stressful. Of course, that's going to impact your mood. So psychological adjustment, I think, to body changes, that's never, not always easy, for, well, for a lot of women. I think uh, also if you've got a, a difficult pregnancy, that, that can be part of what adds to the risk. So like you said, hyperemesis, but even just what would be regarded as normal nausea and vomiting in the, in the early stages of pregnancy can be hard enough. And, yeah. and a, a trigger it's never I guess an isolated factor that will cause it but it adds to the mix with the hormones and and change adjustment I think you know threat of loss if you've had a bit of bleeding so or if you've had a past miscarriage mm. so that can prime you for being a bit anxious complicated pregnancy um, if you're you know uh, all of those things and then you're juggling a toddler or older mm. kids so your circumstances and if you've got little support that can be a risk factor too so yeah I think um, you know those are the factors that can conspire to create the perfect storm and heighten mm. the risk. Every time we have an episode with a professional about this kind of chat I look back at my past and I, I go deeper and deeper and go, holy fucking shit. If there wasn't one alarm bell, I can see it clearly. Like I had with my third child hyperemesis until the end. I had two other children I was taking care of. I had a traumatic end to my birth and I went home and I ended up having postnatal depression to the point where I walked into a hospital wanting professionals to look at me and tell me that I wasn't going insane. And it was the most saddest experience of my life because I had no idea what was going on in my head and my anxiety was at such a peak 
that I couldn't control it. And so a psychologist came up. He, I don't know what goes down below that hospital, but there's a lot going down there. He came up and he sat with me. And within five minutes, he said, you have extreme anxiety and depression right now. You have got to stop fighting it, Jade. And I sat there, I think for 30 seconds and I go, okay, so how do we stop fighting it? And he said, you've got to stop thinking like this. You just stop. And I'm like, no, 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 you're right. But like, there's got to be a way that, and he goes, Jade, you're doing it again. So the more you think about your anxiety, it's going to grow and it's going to get bigger. And I went home, he said, have a Valium. And I said, no, 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 I would never take a Valium because that gives me more anxiety. He's thinking you poor fucking thing. Like if you can't, if we can't help you just to like numb your brain for a little bit. So I did, I, I went through this whole process of being terrified of my own mind for such a long time. Also trying to keep three little kids alive and not scare the shit out of my husband. And it was the most terrifying time of my life. And I don't think that like I commend myself for being smart enough to walk into a hospital and say, anybody help me now, like anybody help me. But there are women who really just either feel like they don't know that this is a normal thing. They don't know if they should or could go to a professional and get help. And that saddens me because these people have to suffer and then everyone else suffers and they don't get help. And it's just a sad, sad story. It's a travesty. It's a travesty in my mind. I always say to most of the women I see, especially the ones that are really unwell because they need to hear it, I say, you know what? I love what I do because women get better. With the right intervention, you get better. And it's as simple as that. And, I mean, otherwise I'd have the crappiest job in the world. Why the hell would I I do this? Women didn't get better. You will get better, but you've got to allow yourself to get better, Mm. I think. I think there's such a barrier. You know, if you presented with all these physical symptoms of a diabetic episode, right, tell Mm. me you'd fight it. (laughs) <laughs> like, give me the insulin. Give me mm. the insulin. Tell me what i got to do. And so I, I, I think there's still a long way to go for, with, with that concept of acceptance and destigmatizing and creating more accessible pathways to help for women because we put up with, you know, I, I often say what I commonly what I see is that it has to get worse before it gets better. You know, in your case, it got worse, like for mm. you being in that state and, and asking for help. It's because you, you just couldn't keep going, you know, and that's a travesty. You know, we would want it. We want to get in earlier than that yeah. to prevent it getting to that point. Yeah, I think a generation ago or two generations ago, everything was just swept under the rug. We didn't even talk about these things and now it's great that we talk about these things but it's almost like with more light being shed on the realities of postpartum, etc. we then go, oh, everyone's going through this so I just put up with it and then, you know, if we've got the slightest bit of support then we go, oh, well, I'm so lucky and privileged to have that support so it means you know I should be finding this manageable and it's almost like we need to take the information and go yes this is common but it doesn't have to be normal like sleep Mm. deprivation is common but there's also things we can do to help that and motherhood can be isolating and and that can be common but it we don't all have to put up with that and I think it's one of these things that it's great that we hear that other women go through hyperemesis or you know have gone through a mass miscarriage previously but that doesn't mean that because it's a shared experience, we just have to then go, okay, we deal with it. Yeah, it's almost like you're alluding to just because we talk about it, we know what it is. Yeah. But there's a difference between knowing what it is and and ensuring we've got evidence-based treatment access to it and and implementation of it you know what we have to recognize is it's an illness just like diabetes just like you know like no one most of the women I speak to wouldn't have qualms we don't have to like it we don't have to like it when it happens but yeah we have qualms in accepting the treatment approach to diabetes and diabetes is a biological illness where your pancreatic cells degenerate and you don't produce enough insulin to regulate your glucose Depression and anxiety is also biological. We have neurotransmitters in our brain that regulate mood. 
just like insulin regulates blood glucose, mm. we have neurotransmitters. And for whatever reason, whether it's the hormonal influence, you know, the other factors I've alluded to, somehow impacts that neurotransmitter function. And so there's a biology to this without a doubt. We can't switch it on and off, just like you mm. can't switch diabetes on and off. And so we have to actually acknowledge that it's an illness that requires evidence-based approach to treatment just like any other condition out there that we wouldn't bat an eyelid at because you wouldn't break a leg and just say oh just put on half the cast like Mm. don't put on the whole cast Um, and don't give me pain relief like you know fighting valium when you said correct don't give me the pain relief for the broken leg Mm. so you know but it's also shame as well like I was at a stage where I was like hey just so you all know I'm not crazy I'm not going crazy just let I want you guys all to know that I'm okay and that's sad because I was trying to make people believe that I was okay because I was guilty of having a mental illness. You were worried you were going to make the people around you uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 And isn't, but it's, isn't that just like we wouldn't do it with any other ailment, would we? Would we? And this is the thing we have to kind of just normalize its existence as an illness and therefore normalize the approaches to treatment and you know not everybody with diabetes needs insulin so when we talk about the equivalent with mental illness it's antidepressants with depression and anxiety in particular you know so we don't always go for insulin it can be diet and lifestyle modification and then there's the equivalent for for depression and anxiety just like we've alluded to some of the strategies and interventions that don't necessarily have to be about medication but you know medication and just because I'm a psychiatrist, I feel like I have to say this because people think just because I'm a psychiatrist, like you prescribe. You just, she's going to throw pills out. Get out. Get out of my office and take that. She's sending them through the Zoom call. Yeah. <laughs> I do not. She's holding up Zoloft as we speak. I, I, this is not drug companies. I do not push medications. Um, not at all. But there's in, a place for them. In, there's a, it's in the repertoire of evidence-based practice. When someone presents with severe symptoms, symptoms that I categorise as very clearly biological symptoms, there's a few clues in symptoms that tell us when it's biological, you know, I will put it on the table and I do it because the presentation guides me, whereas if there are they're less severe it's a mild you know and even when I'm not sure I'll err on the side of holding off but seeing that person frequently so we we have a toolkit at our disposal and you know it's about implementing what is necessary to get better and that will will vary from individual to individual. It's interesting that you said about diet and lifestyle because I found that that was one of the things that really strongly impacted me was because I had hyperemesis the only things I could eat were things like hot chips, and then after I ate them, not in a way that I was like, oh, that food is bad for you, but it was just I I didn't feel good after eating it. And then so it was this like cycle of the only things I could eat, then I felt physically crap afterwards and then, you know, I'm someone that exercises and I normally eat well and exercise is something that I really enjoy and then I suddenly – did not, I think I went for two 10-minute freaking walks in the stage of 13 weeks. Like how can we modify diet and lifestyle to make ourselves feel good when we can't do those things? Well, hyperemesis is its own little category without getting too bogged down in the management of hyperemesis. I went to a conference a few years ago and there is a treatment that I certainly talk about in my sessions uh, that can be helpful in alleviating symptoms. And there's all the standard approaches that a lot of obstetricians will go through. It's starting to get a little bit of traction, but I've had a lot of success with it. My aim in my sessions with a lot of women, it's one thing to manage the mood, but it's also we've got to manage the triggers as well. Well, yeah. And you're right, you can't do the diet and lifestyle whilst you're feeling so <laughs> not such profound nausea yeah. and vomiting. So part one of the things I do approach in, in, in the sessions is trying to look at pharmacological ways to manage the noise, the extreme nausea and vomiting. And the, the, the medication that I've often used has some reasonably good success. And so if we can take the edge off, then we can get onto those. Yeah. That's an important part of it. Even things like I've had some women sitting in my room dehydrated, if we're talking about hypermesis. You know, dehydrated, miserable, looking like crap. And I'm like, you've got to go to an emergency department and you yeah, yeah. fluids. You will feel better with just yeah. so much better. 
You might vomit the next day and feel shit again, but that that night you'll feel great. No, but I do find that once you finally freaking go in and then think to yourself, why didn't I do this four weeks ago, I do feel like the couple of days afterwards are your best couple of days. And like my dad, he's an obstetrician and he works in the private sector, so I don't know if it's available to people in the public sector, but he has patients that go into outpatients like every three or four days and get a couple of liters. They just are booked in and then often that oversees you for a couple of days. And he's like, of course, there's still going to be moments of suffering, but you know, you've at least got those appointments ahead of you. Yeah, exactly. But even that, like women that just put up with thinking that's I've just got to endure this for the whole pregnancy, we don't need to. So there are different, you know, different approaches to managing it, both pharmacologically and just, you know, logically by giving you more fluids. But again, it's that sort of rather than minimising symptoms and sitting with them and feeling like this is what I've got to put up with, allowing ourselves to access help. And if we hit a brick wall with one clinician, try another because that's the other thing. It might not be every clinician's expertise. That's the other thing. I've had some women that might have been dismissed. They might have been talking about their mood. And I mean, let's face it, GPs are very rushed these days. There's, I mean, there's a lot of great GPs out there, but they're very rushed. They might, you know, if a woman's booked a, a 15 minute appointment and she's come for, for, you know, specific reasons around her pregnancy, but then she chucks in right at the end. Oh, and I'm feeling a bit sad and people. <laughs> GP might not have time. Um, a good GP will say, come back and see me. We need to make time. Mm. Yes. But I think in terms of how you can help yourself, book a long appointment. Don't. Yeah. Don't book a short appointment. Book a long appointment. Book a follow-up as well. And if you don't get the answers you want with one clinician, try another. Mm. Is that Put, other take the matters into your own hands. Not, not, yeah, we've got to empower patients to, to, to ensure that they're, you know, knocking on every door and leaving no stone unturned, so to speak. Mm. And what's the likelihood of developing postnatal depression if you've had antenatal depression? I'd say it's probably just going to be an extension of the same episode. Yeah. Of yeah. So I, th- I think you more than anything, I mean, the postnatal period's a risk factor in itself. So if you've got an untreated level of antenatal depression, the risk is it will just exacerbate. Mm. So the risk of exacerbation is high, especially if you don't have a, a plan in place or have a treatment approach in place. Absolutely. And do we think it affects the baby at all? Mm. Uh, yes, some studies have shown. And, and I don't want to freak women out. Like I'm not yeah. about We're just gulping right now going, <laughs> great. No, <laughs> poor children. Yeah. My job is to reduce anxiety. Not yeah. anxiety. No, we're freaking out. <laughs> End the call. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. Um, She's no. got more. Uh, no, so I'm talking severe, sustained, untreated, depression, anxiety. So not, you know, I had a bit of low mood for a few hours or a few days or even a few weeks. So just to reassure women out there that we've got to remember that when we are depressed and anxious, it's not just psychological phenomena. So we talk about the thinking patterns that go with depression and anxiety, like often negative thinking, hopeless, helpless, we're inadequate, we're failing, guilt, guilt is a big one. Mm -hmm. If I had a dollar for every time I dealt with maternal guilt, I'd have a lot of dollar coins, (laughs) (laughs) like a lot. So there's the, the, the psychological aspects that go with depression, anxiety. But there is also, we've got to remember, we've got stress hormones. There's a physiology to anxiety. So, you know, some of you may uh, have experienced when you're anxious, you feel your heart race, you might feel hot, cold flushes, that sort of thing. That's because there are stress hormones that, that will probably be pretty elevated when we're anxious, let alone when we've actually got a clinical anxiety and depression. So cortisol, adrenaline, you might have heard of those, those particular ones. They cross the placenta. Like, so, you know, when women are telling me I'm scared to take medication in pregnancy, well, your anxiety is not helping here. (laughs) So sustained anxiety, depression is associated with small for gestational age babies. So babies that track small and might need early delivery because they're tracking small and premature labor. So there are ramifications for baby and the pregnancy when you have sustained, untreated depression, anxiety. Yeah. 
instead of that causing further anxiety, it's just a reminder that there is help out there and you can get help rather than leading to further anxiety that you're also harming your baby. Oh, absolutely. That's why I wanted to, to, to preface it with like it's, it's at a sustained level, but even then like it's, you know, I always say to so many of my patients, there's a large margin for error to muck a kid up. So it's you know, <laughs> reassurance. A lot of women don't believe me, but there is. Like it takes a hell of a lot to stuff a kid up. So, you know, we know that even with hyperemesis, you're barely getting the nutritional oh my gosh, you love yeah. to be having in an ideal sense. But these little parasites will take what they need yeah. and they will thrive. And more often than not, the babies of women who've had hyperemesis are fine, you know. So um, it's the same with sustained anxiety, depression. Bubs that are growing in utero are reasonably resilient. Just because these things can happen doesn't mean that, that they're going to be really common as well. Yeah. So I just, yes, I agree. We've got to reassure all the women out there so that they don't think having anxiety. I just feel like we get so many brochures about like so many different things when you are pregnant. And if we actually had a quality book or even a link to say, this is what you should look at in terms of. You mean like a podcast link? <laughs> Beyond the Bump <laughs> podcast link. As if in this state you are reading a brochure. <laughs> like the amount of brochures I've had handed to me and I'm like, yeah, cool. But you touched on anxiety before and. And, you know, we initially were going to come into this chat talking about depression, but as we said, there's so much overlap and we had so many of our beautiful listeners write in saying, please, I've had multiple losses in the past. How can I do pregnancy? Just so much anxiety around pregnancy. Uh, look, I think this is where if you already know you're primed to likely have anxiety and if you've had multiple losses, that's that's an example of where I'd be sort of suggesting, well, it's normal to have a degree of anxiety going into another pregnancy. Like that's absolutely normal. But I would be suggesting then, well, let's be preventative. Like yes. why are you sitting dark to, to sit and struggle with that anxiety? Link in, preferably preconception. I Every time I get yeah. a preconception referral, I'm like, Yes. yes. Yeah. That's yeah. the ultimate in prevention. You know, so go and see your GP, get a referral to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and engage, even preferably before you conceive. And if you are just pregnant, go and do it. Even if you have, you know, that anxiety is bubbling, but it hasn't. Why wait till it's really bad? Like why and, not? And what's the worst that's going to happen? Well, look, you know, most of us are generally pretty professional and reasonably yeah. what we do. And so, yeah, what's the worst that can happen? You go, I didn't really click with that person. Okay, I'll go and see someone else. I'll get another referral. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, what's the worst that can happen? But what's the best that can happen? You've got support. You can help process that anxiety, work through it, dismantle its little tentacles because that's what anxiety does. I always say it just likes to latch on and find something to worry about. And when it's really bad, it's like super glue. It's super glued on. I always say we've got to get it to that really worn out Velcro. So it tries to stick, but then it just... So yeah, having help, I think psychologically is absolutely, if you know you're primed, pregnancy loss is is a good example. I think sometimes women who've gone through fertility treatment as well, that's another one that you can be a bit primed for a bit of anxiety, depression. It can be joyful to finally be pregnant, but I think the, the process that is protracted fertility treatment can wear you down too. So, And we've heard some from so many women who, whether it be in pregnancy or postpartum, who have had, you know, a long fertility journey who then go, this is all I've ever wanted, mm-hmm. so why am I not enjoying every second of it? And it's like no one enjoys every second of pregnancy, no one enjoys every second of parenthood. Oh, the pregnancy just, unicorn, unicorns do. Yeah, I still don't believe they enjoy every second. <laughs> like they've got to be constipated or something. <laughs> No, they enjoy that. (laughs) You're absolutely right. It's like because I really wanted this means that I have to love it. Yeah. Because, you know, they're they're the ones that have definitely signed up by virtue of the process they've just been through. But you're absolutely right that they're going to be just as prone 
to hardship or, or unhappiness or anxiety as any other woman in pregnancy and postpartum. And we had quite a few people write in asking about any tips for coping with gender disappointment. Someone said they're worried that finding out that the sadness will lead to antenatal depression, but they also didn't feel like they could tell anyone that because of the stigma that comes with that. Yeah, it's not uncommon, gender disappointment, actually. And I've um, had quite a few women over the years that have, that's been one facet of their presentation. And look, I guess on its own, it would, I guess you'd have to be pretty devastated for it to morph into an actual clinical depression. I think you might be primed for other reasons, the hormones, the other circumstances, you know, so then that might be a tipping point. So could it lead to depression, a clinical depression, anxiety, possibly? I think making space for it because I think initially when you have that disappointment, I think it's grief. I think because we attack yeah. a certain fantasy to having a little girl or a little boy and we hold on to that. Many of us since we were little, we, we might have an idea or fantasy of what, what, what it is that we want. And then you go into that scan and they tell you it's not what we thought. And I think that it's a process of grief around what we wanted it to be, what we hoped it would be. And so working through that grief and I think normalizing it too, I think is really important. You know, that's really part of the process. The other thing that I do with a lot of women in, in this, um, who have this, and the gender disappointment is in addition to working through grief is slowly making space for this baby, just sort of start making a space for this baby of this gender. You know, so things like thinking of names, buying some little outfits or just to start forming connection with this baby because it's an adjustment, isn't it? It's an adjustment to what you thought it was going to be or what you hoped it was going to be. And so making space and working through the feelings that go with that. And if you are like you've got a idea in your head that you're going to have a boy and that obviously that could lead to gender disappointment if you're having a girl or vice versa with the sex, would you recommend... I was going to ask this question. I was like, oh, you understand. gave me a heart Sorry. attack. Would yeah. you recommend finding out while you're pregnant so you can get your head around and actually do the work or would you get a surprise and then have to do the work while the baby's in your arms? Yeah, because a lot of people say they're like, oh, once I meet the baby, there's no way I could be disappointed. Oh, look, you still can be. I, I yeah. think, again, it's just how entrenched that desire is, I think, and, and how rigid you are with that desire. I think, yeah, it's one thing to be holding on to a lifelong fantasy of boy or girl, but then also I think the other common one is if you've got two boys, you want a girl. You've got two girls, you want a boy. So I do think finding out can be a bit preventative because you give yourself time to adjust, whereas if you don't find, you, you find out, as soon as you give birth and then you've got to adjust because the baby's, you know, here. And, and, and you know, it's possible. It's, you can still work through it. But, you know, there's lots of then. There's a lot of other adjustments. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we all need to be reminded that there's going to be a percentage or a chance that it will be a different sex. Like if you have that thought, and you're thinking, oh, I've got two girls, but this one's definitely going to be a boy. My gosh, you are literally setting yourself up 50% to fail, right? Pretty much. Yep, that's right. So, I mean, when we look at it logically, it's like, yeah, why do we do that to ourselves? But, yeah, this is where it's not it's not logical any, uh, yeah. there's an emotional attachment isn't there yeah. to the idea of a boy and that's what it is it's the idea of a boy or the idea of a girl I think we get uh, emotionally attached for all sorts of reasons stuff about our own upbringing you know I, I had two brothers growing up I always wanted a sister and never got one so naturally I wanted a daughter I got two boys I don't know what I did <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the universe is trying to tell me um, so you know there's so much priming that can happen and yeah it's the idea of so you know we we just got to you know it's okay it's part of what makes us human we're allowed to have a preference or what yeah. we think is a preference because you're right inevit inevitably when you meet that little person that helps that does help the adjustment too and they're never going to be how you imagined either. Anyway, whether that be physically, personality, totally. like, yeah. 
How can we explain these feelings of depression, anxiety to the people around us? I mean, I can imagine a scenario where, you know, you have been trying for a long time and your partner's probably absolutely stoked to be pregnant or, or you know, I even found it even though we didn't try for a long time that, you know, people assume that because you're down it means you're not happy about the news. How can we explain that doesn't mean that we love our baby any less. It doesn't mean that we're not grateful to be pregnant. It doesn't mean that we don't feel for those who are currently unable to get pregnant. How can we explain these things? Because I feel like that's a lot of the reason why people hide is because they fear they're going to offend others who want what you have. Yeah. I, I think maybe coming back to what we were talking about before, which is just looking at it, that this is an illness, that that this is where I'm at right now and this is the manifestation of this illness and it doesn't mean I'm, I don't want this baby or that, you know, I uh, am, am not happy about the pregnancy per se, but I'm just not happy right now, you know, and this is how it's manifesting. And, you know, I think also just picking people, you know, can absorb that. Like sometimes we kind of have a sense, not always, but we sometimes have a sense of who can absorb that and, and not judge that because then I think it's a bit of a form of self-harm if you're just willy-nilly going around and you're telling people in your world, but you know that they're not going to handle it well and they're going to tell you oh don't be silly oh it's just you know you'll be fine and you know you don't because that's not what you want you don't want someone that's dismissive you can't sit in that with you and accept it and accept it and and know that you're not a terrible person or going to be a terrible mum because of it and how can we best support someone you believe has antenatal depression I think, you know, well, checking in is important. Just, you know, text message, a phone call, dropping in, how are you? I think uh, what I often get is a lot of women tell me what they really hate when they're not great is when people try to fix it for them or tell them about, oh, when I had, when I was sad or when I, you know, they might not have ever had depression or anxiety, even if they did, but what they needed when they were not well doesn't mean that that's what this person needs when, when they're currently not well. So I think listening is a big one and asking, how can I help you? What's the best thing I can do? Sometimes it's practical, like dropping over something for dinner. Sometimes let me fold your laundry. Let me take your older kids. That's a big one. Mm. Like that's that's a helpful one. Let me take them off your hands for a couple of hours so you can get a rest or whatever. So just asking the person, you know, what what can I do? And and sometimes there isn't a lot you can do, but just being around and present and understanding and, and always, I think even though you might, check in and tell them that once or twice you've got to keep doing it because the person who's not well you know what we were talking about before women don't generally put their hands up and say Mm. hey I'm struggling even though their best friend might have said I'm here for you yeah when you really need it well it's really hard to know what is what you need and because the threshold's really high because we're all perfectionists and et cetera, et cetera, and high, have high standards of us that we don't, we don't allow ourselves, even though our friends or family might have given us the green light and told us they're there for them and please call me anytime, but we don't do it. So that's where checking in is really important. Mm. And I think also encouraging them to get help too, because sometimes yeah. I have saying, I want to help my friend, but I don't know what to do. She's really bad friend, you know? And I'm like, it sounds like she needs professional. So how do you say that? Yeah. Be be upfront and honest. I think, you know, I've, I've been watching you and you're not yourself. You're really sad, yeah. you know, and you, we've tra- you've tried a few things. You know, you're trying to, you're taking time off, you take, you're resting, whatever, but you're still feeling really miserable. How about you see your GP? That's a really yeah. Yep, yeah. And do you have any tips for if it is someone who's got anxiety and pregnancy and they've had a loss before, things that are helpful to say? Because obviously you can't say, oh, everything's going to be fine this time. Or I remember I said to a GP, I had my dating scan the next week and that was the scan that I had in the past found out that, you know, the baby was no longer viable. And I remember the GP said, oh, well, worrying about it isn't going to change the outcome. And I was like, that's not helpful. Like what are things that can actually be helpful to say? Do you just say... Well, I I think, you know, it's validating and saying it's understandable you feel anxious because 
that's what you experienced before. So, you know, we've got to validate that bit. But also, too, I'm a big advocate of using facts to help counter anxiety because there is, at that point in time, before you've had the scan, there's no fact that affirms you're going to have another loss. So what we, yeah. what we do have are facts that, well, you peed on a stick and you've got two lines. That's telling us you're pregnant. You might have had a blood test, which tells us that your hormone level, your beta-HCG, is in a really good range, so that's encouraging. Have you had any ble- bleeding when you go to the loo? If there's no bleeding, good sign. So these are all facts we can affirm. Mm. Someone who's got really tender breasts, fabulous. You know, pelvis, <laughs> you've got some hormones flying around. Some women are feeling really nauseated. Excellent. That's a <laughs> because they're all affirmations that there is a hormonal, something's happening hormonally. There's a pregnancy happening. Yeah. So those are facts, aren't they? And then yes, we will have the scan and that's another fact, but you know what happens? Anxiety loves changing the goalposts. You'll have a good yeah. Yeah. early dating scan. It shows that you've got a heartbeat and all that sort of thing. And then oh, but now I've got to get through to the 12-week scan and the blood test. And and so then the anxiety finds something else to latch on to. But then, you know, you have to go with facts because facts are tangible. They are real. The what if is not real at that point. You know what? We deal with it. We cross that bridge if and when we have to. And you will feel all the feels. You will feel all the feels that go with that scenario. I have some women who just along those lines, if they've had loss before, will say to me, Oh, I'm not getting excited about this. You know, yeah. I, can't, I can't get excited about it because if I have another loss, it, it'll be devastating. I'm like, on what planet does, are you really telling me that not getting excited means that if you have another loss, yeah. it'll be fine? And they're yeah. like, I said, what are you likely to feel if you have another loss? And I go, devastated. I said, exactly. So yeah. not be excited. Give yourself that possibility of enjoying it and, and anchoring yourself in that hope that this can be viable and progress. Why not? You deserve it, especially after a loss, to be hopeful and to be excited. Because I so had happens. that with my mum once where I came across a cute pair of shoes. I've probably never got worn by anyone anyway. <laughs> but I remember going to buy them and my mum went, oh, do you think like, you know, after what happened last time, it's wise to buy the shoes? And I said, mum, if something happens, I'm not going to be grieving the shoes. Like I'm going to be grieving the baby and whether I have the shoes or not, I'm going to be utterly devastated. So let me just buy the shoes. <laughs> buying the shoes won't change the outcome either. No, like, no. It won't make it happen yeah. or not happen. Like, yeah. Exactly. So buy the shoes, be hopeful, buy the little outfits, all the things that you feel. Be true, be true to what you feel rather than letting this fear dictate. Wow, thank you so, so much for chatting with us today. This so makes awesome. me want to go back in time and just freaking get help just have another at the one time. Done. Oh, absolutely not. No <laughs> way. We are done. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's a it it can be a really dark, isolating, exhausting time and yeah I feel like your words can hopefully just bring a little bit of lightness to anyone who's been through this or currently going through this at the moment yeah I hope so I think women need to know that you can you can get out of the hole and you don't have to languish in it before it just settles on its own like get out quicker get the help yeah. yeah. And if you need a dopamine hit, just head on to Fran's Instagram page and yeah, you'll feel or better. if you need a new wardrobe for summer, yeah. head over there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank Hi, you, Fran. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.